And welcome to the Property Pod with me, Emily Evans. And me, David Blackmore. Now, this is very much a different kind of property podcast to one you'd be used to hearing. Um, I'm very much a novice here. Don't know too much about properties. I barely own a property myself. However, Emily is an estate agent, um, letting agent, and I've been a property developer for over 10 years now. So you probably know a lot more than me. And my job here is, is going to be purely asking those questions that I hope you listening to would want answers to. Um, this first podcast is all about buying a property. And for me, whenever I think about buying a property, the first thing that crosses my mind is saving up for a deposit. That's the first, that's the thing you're always told, isn't it? But Emily, you perhaps would disagree. The first thing you think you people should be doing is... Getting a credit card. Now, okay. I feel terrible saying that. Um, and again, I'm not someone that likes to spend a lot of money on a credit card, but you need to build up a credit rating before buying a property. Um, so get yourself a credit card, spend a bit of money on it and pay it off every month. I have people coming to me and saying, but I don't need a credit card because I've got money and I don't need to borrow money. Mm. But then that also shows that you've never actually been, had to prove that you can pay money back. So, you know, don't spend too much money on it. Pay it back every month and you will build up a credit rating. Now, the next thing, which is probably quite controversial for me as someone that has, has, a, has a bank account. I've been with that bank since I was 12. I've never changed. I've never dreamed of changing because it does what I ask of it. Um, I would just go straight into that branch straight away and ask to speak to their mortgage person. However, you would say actually your next step then would be to have a chat with an independent mortgage advisor. Absolutely. So you're very right in thinking, oh, I'll go to my bank. You know, we're all very loyal, but ultimately they're not very loyal to us as uh, consumers. So go to an independent mortgage advisor because an independent mortgage advisor will compare, you know, like compare the meerkat, compare the market.com. Mm -hmm. They will compare whole of market. An independent one will. So an independent one will compare all of market. Just a mortgage or financial advisor might have a panel that they're restricted to. So make sure it is an independent or they are an independent mortgage advisor. You've said that a couple of times, but is there a difference between an independent mortgage advisor and an non-independent is yeah is, yeah big are, difference. Are, are there some that are affiliated with yes so, oh right i just assumed all those kind of if they're not in a bank they would all be independent no. so the next thing then is talking about thinking about deposit and i think a lot of people try it's so difficult to save up for a deposit now and i think a lot of people don't really know how much they should be saving for but there are plenty of options aren't there but is is the but kind of the average one you're looking for about 10 percent Ideally, you want to be saving a 10% deposit to buy a house. That's just my personal recommendation. Mortgage rates are better than ones that you can get at 5% with a 5% deposit. Banks and building societies have, over the last few years, they they were really, obviously, we used to be able to get 100% mortgages, mm -hmm. but they became a bit tied to, and now they're becoming a bit looser again, where you can put down a 5% deposit. But rates on a 5% deposit are going to be a lot higher. So I would always say, save yourself a 10% deposit, and your mortgage rates are going to be generally quite good. Buy to let wise, that's completely different. You know, you need at least a twenty percent deposit. Yeah, and we we can we will cover buy to let in 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 future podcasts as well because this is very much for those kind of millennials who perhaps like me um didn't really understand all all of it. When it comes to how much you're going to get a mortgage for, you, you're looking at four to five times your income, isn't it? Which is it more towards the four now than five? Then I'm guessing in days gone by, it would be five, but perhaps is it more four now? Or? It's four to five. Okay. You know, it all depends on your personal circumstances, whether you're employed, self-employed. If you're self-employed, there are some lenders that will do it on a good like a year's accounts, but generally mortgage advisors say three years accounts. Would you, 
self-employed a, a good avenue that must be so tough to get a mortgage as someone self-employed yeah especially in, with three years accounts absolutely yeah so it's there are lenders as i said that will do a year's accounts um but you're gonna have to prove you know give them <laughs> so many statements like a year's worth of statements um there's going to be a lot of work that you're going to have to put in behind proving all of your income but generally yeah it will be it's normally about three years accounts that you will need so talk about mortgages now now um I guess people perhaps like me, you don't really understand the differences between them. So a repayment mortgage, um, that must be that you're paying a little bit of the mortgage off at the same time as, as paying off interest, yeah? Yes, absolutely. So repayment is you're paying your part of your mortgage off and the interest that that bank's charging you as well. When then you've got an interest only mortgage yeah, where you're only. where you're just paying off the interest. So at the end of it, you won't be paying anything off of the actual mortgage. M- mainly interest only mortgages are for buy to let landlords. So if you are buying a property for yourself to live in, you'd always want to go down the repayment mortgage side of things. Okay, so and presumably the benefit of interest only is that um, you're only paying off the interest. Um, but your house is going to go up in value, so you know it's, you're not losing money. It's a, j- a cheaper way, a more cost-effective way. If, you, if you're really low on income, or yeah, the reason you do an interest-only mortgage and the reason landlords do it is to instead of paying money off the property, most landlords will look at a property as in they're going to earn money through capital growth. Mm-hmm. So by an interest-only mortgage, they are pocketing the extra bit of money to be able to do something else with that money. For example, save it up in a pot to buy another property. So yeah, that's why landlords will generally do interest-only mortgages. So you've got your credit card, you've got your mortgage advisor, let's call him Larry. Um, you've, <laughs> you've got your deposit, you know kind of your income and how much you're going to be getting um, and you know kind of what, what you can get with, with different mortgage options. Um, the one thing I, I definitely felt like I didn't know about when I was when I was younger or wasn't explained to me properly all those, all those other costs that, that they do really mount up. I mean, the biggest one is stamp duty. Yep. So stamp duty land tax is something we all have to pay, unfortunately. If the government ever wants to get the property market moving, they should be abolishing it completely. Recently, they've the Chancellor brought out that first-time buyers up to 300,000 no longer have to pay stamp duty. But over 300,000... They do have to. So it goes up in increments. And again, I will put this, we'll put this under the podcast so that people have that. There's nothing to pay up to 125,000. From 125,000 to 250,000, you have to pay 2%. From 250,000 to 925,000, you have to pay 5%. And if any of you first-time buyers are buying a property um, of 925,000 or above, well, congratulations, you'll have to be paying 10%. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> so and and the the things with the stamp duty is it's just like oh yeah here you go we we'd like the money now please and you just there you go transfer it over and it's done. Yep, you can't get a mortgage for it. Well, you shouldn't ever really get a loan for it. But it's one of those things that it's just money for nothing. It's another tax that we're paying stamp mm. duty land tax. And then of course on top of that you have your solicitor fees and the the moving costs as well. Which depending on um, if you're a first time buyer. You, you're probably going to be moving out of a room as opposed to have a big house. But you, you could be in a situation where you're first time buying and you have a whole house with a family, say, and you're looking to make that plunge. You could have a lot of stuff to move. Yeah, or if you are a first time buyer and you haven't, you are moving out of home, you've got a lot of stuff to buy. Mm. So, you know, it's um, buying stuff for the property, your solicitor's fees, survey, you know, it's 
it's a costly it is a costly thing buying a property or you could just go to a pretty famous swedish um place that you go around and you just pick up stuff you see the rooms you just <laughs> stuck it you stick it in your trolleys and you can just recreate that room in your room oh dear david is that what you did <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> everything um talk to me about the one thing i didn't really understand when i was buying as well was the the help to buy ices i didn't really see the point i didn't understand it you know everything that i read didn't seem to to make too much sense but th- there are bonuses and, and positives to be had from it so people get confused between between help to buy ices and help to buy mortgages so help to buy mortgages are completely different help to buy mortgages something that you can only get on a new build property and I'll, ca- I'll come to talk about that in a second but help to buy isa is basically a savings account that you pay an amount in and the government pay an amount in as well at the end of the day it's not a massive amount of money and it's probably just going to cover your solicitor's fees and your moving costs basically it's a 25% bonus that the government give you. So you can receive up to £3,000 tax-free money from the government if you have saved £12,000. So it's, it, you know, it is good. Um, it's better than nothing. But at the same time, government, you know, where does three grand get you these days? Not very far. Yeah. So while this all, all is going on, would you advise... It, it, it does feel a bit like a juggling act, doesn't it? But the actual property element to it or finding the property... Are you kind of looking as you're going to kind of get a flavour of, of what you can actually afford? Um, or do you do you think you have to go so far down the line before you can start looking at properties? So I will have done everything, everything we've just spoken about. I would do all of that. And now at this point, I would now go to look to See, buy a property. So many people would just look at properties yep. first. Yep. And then they'll go and look and they'll be so disappointed because they'll then find out that the house they've just fallen in love with, they can't afford. Right. Okay. So so then you've got to this point, then you know what you can afford. Yep. Um, are there other tick boxes that you would have for someone buying for a new property for the first time? Now, with finding a property... I suppose the main thing when you're looking at a property for um, yourself is area. So what area do you want to be in? Are you going to be living near family? Do you need to live near work? Mm -hmm. Area is really important. And again, some people will just know, oh, I don't need help with area because I just know where I want to live. Well, that's great. If you don't know where you want to live and you're looking to invest in something because you want to live there but also make money, look at local infrastructure. You know, what new jobs are coming to the town or, or place you're looking to buy in. And also look at schooling. If you are then looking to buy something to live in for a bit and then possibly rent out, look at where tenants are looking to looking to move. So again, it's around where, where there are jobs and where there's infrastructure going in. And I'm guessing with everything that we've had with like the rail networks and stuff and the investment that goes in there, yeah. I guess that's another thing to... Absolutely. So the minute we get information like that from the government or anyone saying, oh, we've got a new um, train line going in here, you know, they're the areas that get snapped up really quickly. So yes, luckily a lot of people will look to buy because that's where they live at the moment. So you'll know about your area. If you don't do a lot of research, mm-hmm. area is really, really important. And I guess if you're thinking longer term as well as short term, because you, as a first time buyer, it might be just two of you that buy, but that could soon become three and soon could become four. And I guess that you need to be thinking as those things about school, but also the size, the size of the property as well. Yeah, it's buying a property is, is really complicated and tricky. And I would never say to anyone to buy a property for a year or two years don't look at it as short as a short-term plan you need to look at it long term especially so many young people are buying new builds at the moment 
and they're buying new builds because well, there aren't many other properties around mm. and the government are offering a help to buy mortgage which is which is what people you know people are thinking oh this is great but yeah. actually if you're going to buy a new build property you've got to look at it long term it's got to be a 5 year plus plan for the fact of and some people might not agree with me here but new build prices are inflated by at least 20%. If you, Mr. First-Time Buyer, were to walk into a new build office and you needed help to buy a mortgage and I went in as a cash buyer, you would be paying 20% more on that value, on the price of that property than I would. I'd probably get a 20% discount because I've got cash in the bank. So ultimately, our properties are sat next to each other. People in the future, in a couple of years' time, will be like, well, why is that property worth that it was sold for that much and you paid that much Do for you know that what? property I've, I've seen that loads i've seen that loads on new builds and also i guess the the other thing that with with properties when you look at them the, the way i looked at it as well if you've got a property that's of a certain age or, or different if it's if it's been standing 100 years standing 50 years um it's already stood the test of time whereas some of these new builds some of the stories you hear about them actually are a bit worrying in that you think like they, they they're almost not fit for fit for purpose they're put up very quickly. I mean, architecture and, you know, us building properties these days, they're put up so quickly and it's not they're not built like they used to be. That said, there are still very good properties out there. But, for example, where I'm from in Somerset, they um, have built thousands of properties on what was a floodplain before. So they had to pile all these properties. And piling is basically piling land up so they stand above what the floodplain would be. Um and because ultimately we're running out of space, you know, we, we live we live on this small island and, and we are running out of space. So we are having to build to um, give housing to, you know, to all of the people living here now. But yeah, new build, I would really, really watch out for new builds. OK, so you've got to the stage where you've worked out what you can afford, the area you want to live in, the size of the property, especially if you're planning on having a, a big family or just a family. The, the thing that I then didn't really understand was... The difference between a leasehold and a, and a freehold, and it, it oh, I mean, the wonders of Google, I, you know, I did obviously Google it, but I still didn't quite understand, especially the leasehold, especially with like years running out and stuff. It all got a bit confusing. So I guess I kind of get what the freehold is, but but what is it? What is a leasehold? And I think a lot of people do get tripped, caught up on this, don't they? So most flats are leasehold. So leasehold means that you just have a lease from the freeholder to use that property for a number of years. The years could be anything from 99 years to 125 years to 999 years. Most mortgage lenders won't lend on a property that has less than, I think, about 90 years on it because it can be very costly to renew that lease with the freeholder. So that's leasehold. And then freehold is, well, basically, you do own the land. You own the land and you own the property. I would always like to try and own a freehold property because it's the safest option. Um, but sometimes, you know, especially living in cities, we're not lucky enough to be able to have freehold properties. We have to have leasehold. Most purpose-built flats that new developers have built are going to be leasehold. You're going to pay ground rent on them and you're going to pay management costs as well. You can also buy flats if you look at more like Victorian properties that are split into multiple flats where you own a share of the freehold. So it's leasehold, but you own a share of the freehold. So that's also quite good because you do own part of the freehold, 
as so if there are four flats in one property you own a quarter of that I would always try and stay away from leasehold but you know sometimes we're, we're not lucky enough to be able to do that so when buying a leasehold property just make sure you do your homework make sure you know exactly what your ground rent is make sure you know exactly what your management charges are mm-hmm. and I know people that have been caught out previously on management costs rising as well so just just be really over that Okay, so when you're now looking to go and view a property, I think the one bit of advice that my parents gave certainly gave me was when you're walking around that house, do not start looking at, oh, this is going to be our front room and already picturing your property or your stuff in there because you might be missing out on stuff that you otherwise wouldn't see. So what are kind of the things that you would say you need to be looking out for when you're viewing a property? Do you know what? When I'm viewing a property, I'll always view a property twice. So I'll go and have a look at it. And then when I'm trying to make a decision whether I do want it or not and trying to think of what I'm gonna what I'm gonna what am I gonna offer on the property, I would go back again and have a more thorough look. On that second viewing, I would always take back a builder. It's all, you know, at the end of the day, if you're buying your first home, you get caught up in it, don't you? You get mm. caught up in, oh, I can see my sofa there and it's all, you know, lovely. But on that second viewing, make sure you take back a builder with you or someone that knows what they're looking at if you are worried about a few of the things you've seen. So things to look out for are, you know, damp. And I think, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, Emily, what hap- what is, you know, if I'm looking at a house and there's damp in the corners of the rooms, you know, you know, that could be just something as easy as block guttering. You mm-hmm. know, it could be the guttering's blocked and it's overflowing and it's causing damp in the corner of rooms but then it could be more serious it could be roofing issues so I would always recommend if you can take someone like a builder that knows what they're looking at other things to look out for um, are cracks so you can get hairline cracks that are basically just is this plaster cracking but then you can get more serious cracks and if you see a crack that has obviously come down from like a bedroom upstairs and is downstairs that's going to be a lot more serious Mm. and is probably more like subsidence yeah yeah. so definitely get that looked into one thing again i always recommend people to look at is you know the boiler and the electric so look at the boiler open you know the airing cupboard and find out the age of the boiler there's generally always a sticker on the boiler of when it was last serviced or when it was installed again i'm no plumber but boilers generally last for about 12 10 between 10 and 15 years so if it's nearer 50 you know 10 to 15 years old you're going to be looking at spending you know another two three thousand pounds on a boiler same with you know the electric so find the consumer board a newer style consumer unit will have switches for every generally every room at the cooker the lighting when old consumer units are very very simple and will have like four switches again that's going to probably need replacing if you've also if you look in the consumer board as well and there's a green and yellow wire that's a good sign that the electrics have been updated more recently that's called an earth wire and yeah that means that the electrics have been oh look i'm, I'm an electrician yeah. but you know i've developed a lot of property so when and, and also being a letting agent as well it's things like this that we need to keep an eye out for you know it's very important keeping um your electricals um your electrics safe uh, do you know what i don't think uh, i mean the damp i certainly looked out for but it was a victorian property so you you, you know it was almost one of the course but all those other bits I certainly didn't ask questions of or, or check. But actually, there's a lot of information out there on different websites, which is what I found quite useful, actually. You can do a bit of bit of research, yeah. and suddenly you, you, you know a lot more answers to questions, especially if properties 
um, have been on the market for a long time or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's all it's all on there. Yeah. So obviously that what we were talking about then was kind of like the, um, the condition of the property. One more thing that I'd like to mention about that is, you know, stand outside the property, look at the property. If any brickwork is kind of out of place, if there are any slip tiles on the roof, that's going to be more of an indicator as well as that there are issues. So, but uh, but just please, you know, take a build around to have a look with you if you are serious on making an offer. So we're at offer stage now and you don't know, you know, you've been looking at properties, you know, it's on the market for let's say 200,000, but you know, how much is that property actually worth? So websites like Zoopla, Rightmove and NetHouse Prices are great because these days we can see what that person paid for that property. So if you go on to Zoopla, I think it's under current house values. And then I think on Rightmove, it's also under current values. You click on that section. So it says for sale to rent and then current values. Click on that, put the property address in and it will bring up the history, the sales history of that property. So if it says, well, Mr. and Mrs. Smith bought that property last year for 170,000. Well, the market's not changed that much in a year. So what have they done? Have they like done an extension on the back? Have they put a new kitchen, new bathroom mm. in? If they haven't, then you know that's a good indicator of actually that, pro- that you know the price is it's been overvalued. So and if if it's not on Zoopla or Rightmove because Rightmove have only just started doing that, you know, putting that on the website. Nethouse price is also another good one. Okay, so yeah, that's really useful about Nethouse prices. That's certainly one I didn't know. So you've got all your ducks in a row now. You know exactly what the value is worth. You, you're ticking all these boxes and you've got everything in place. Now it comes to sort of making an offer, which I'm assuming the estate agent is going to be asking you or, or harassing you about as soon as you leave that door. What, what are the top tips for, what is your number one top tip for making an offer? My number one top tip is do not give away the amount you can go up to. So the amount of people that have made the mistake of, um, that I've had offer through me that have said, right, so Emily, we can afford up to 200,000, but we want to try and, you know, cheeky offer, 190. I'll, I'll have obviously said, yep, of course, I'll try that. But you've got to remember that I am paid or an estate agent is paid by the vendor, the seller. So we earn our commission from them. And it is our job to get as much money for them as possible. So if you've said to me already that you can afford 200,000, I know that you can afford 200,000. So do not give away that at the end of the day, every offer that you make should be your best offer. Mm-hmm. Remember, your first offer is never really going to be taken. So if you're thinking you'd like to get the property for 190, well, offer 188 because that offer is just going to be that's just like a oh, these people are interested in your property. It's the second, third offer that's going to be taken more seriously. So always say when making an offer, I am making this offer and you know this is our best offer. That's a great term to use. And then also really sell yourself as well. So it's not just about the offer and the amount you can afford. But let's say, for example, you viewed the property and someone else has also viewed the property. You are, are you first time buyers? Great. That means you've got no change. Yeah, yeah, of course. Have you got a mortgage all in place? Well, great. That means you've done all, you know, we've already told you to get your mortgage in place. So you've got that because a lot of people, amazingly, you, you wouldn't believe the amount of people that do view properties and they make an offer yeah. and they've never spoken to a financial advisor. I have to say, I'm not surprised. Going through all these steps and I'm thinking that I would have done, th- I certainly did do things in different in different ways. Um, it doesn't make sense because you know you've got to this stage and you have everything ready to go. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing you're kind of saying, 
yeah it's selling yourself isn't it so that the, the person that's selling at the vendor is going do you know what I, it's almost like i want to sell to these people because it's it's the right thing to do it's, it's it's ticking all the boxes yeah and also even if there's a bit of oh we're first time buyers it's our first home together you know really you know really sell yourself and it's amazing how much some sellers will be tied up in emotion they'll be like oh we bought this as our first house we'd love to sell it to you as first time buyers as your first house also we're making you offer as well if it is under the asking price why is it under that asking price so does it need a new kitchen does it need a new bathroom so mr estate agent we are making this offer because and it's five grand below asking price because it needs a new kitchen and it needs a new bathroom or the consumer unit needs updating so really kind of state the facts of why you're making your offer and who you are and why you should have your offer accepted Okay, so we have gone from the very early stages of, you know, the credit card and thinking about that all the way through to view the property and now you're making an offer and you're really selling yourself. Um, We will leave it there, but next time... We'll be telling you after you've had your offer accepted what the next steps of the process are. And trust me, it can be complicated, but stay tuned. You've been listening to The Property Pod.